Hi everyone, I'm Robert Curtis, and you are listening to my new podcast, Coffee with Curtis, where you will find me in conversation with guests from the world of sales, marketing, business, professional development, and more. Together, we will share our insights, value, and inspiration in the hope of helping you in your own business journey. So make yourself a coffee and join us. Enjoy the show. Joining me on Coffee with Curtis this morning is the absolutely engaging Helen Gottstein, CEO of Loud and Clear Training. Originally an Aussie, now based in Israel, Helen is really quite a dynamic guest for us today. Um, She calls this the attention economy, where having your voice heard and being able to assert your thoughts and feelings and strategy through presentation and through your words is absolutely essential. She's trained people like Naz Daly, who said she had great energy, and US envoy to the Middle East, Jason Greenblatt. She is a very experienced sales trainer, an experienced presentation trainer in marketing and in-person presentation skills. And prior to being CEO of her Loud and Clear company today, she has spent many years in academics as well, delivering not just the theory and practical together to, to, to students. So Helen, welcome to Coffee with Curtis. I hope you've got your coffee ready. I'm so ready to drink. I'm like, I started drinking early this morning. Why change now? Robert, I'm delighted to be here. Really, really fun to be your very first guest. It means I'm also your first Jewish guest. So I will say to you, Mazal Tov. And in the spirit of recent developments in our immediate area, I will also say to you, Mabruk, which means congratulations in Arabic. Absolutely. well done, well done. Mabruk, mabruk. <laughs> Thank you. Salam alaikum, as they say. Alaikum salam. So you could go on in Arabic if you like. It might be a very brief, <laughs> indeed, very brief conversation. It, it would indeed. Now, Helen, before we dive in and learn a little bit more about what you do and some of the um, great insights and value that you're going to bring to our listeners today, I've got to ask you first of all: How do you like your coffee? I like my coffee. Well, I have to say I am not a coffee snob. I am married to a coffee snob, but I'm not a coffee snob. I'm like, open that taster's choice in the morning and I am yours. And I drink with soy milk because we recently have become a basically a vegan household and I no longer miss the milk from Daisy. Wow, very good. So I know that I can buy you a cheap cup of coffee when we meet each other. Well, actually, soy milk is more expensive here, so no. (laughs) (laughs) So good try, but no, no. Fantastic. Well, well, Helen, I love to ask this question to everybody, and it's become sort of like a bit of a trademark when I meet people or when I'm on stage or do do other interviews, because it gives me a great insight into understanding a little bit more of who you are. So I want to take you back to your childhood, Helen. When you were a kid and you were thinking about what you wanted to be when you grew up, I don't know whether it was always destined that you were going to be this amazing presentation trainer. What did you want to be when you were a kid? When I was four years old, I was given by my parents 
a gorgeous, glamorous, full-size, adult-size ballroom gown. Now, why would parents give that to a child of four years old? I had to have like elastic over the shoulders to keep the you know, strapless bodice on my four-year-old body. It's because I was always moving and dancing and skipping in rhythm and I always saw myself going into dance. I trained for years and years and years and um, wasn't accepted into university level, the university level dance program. And I went into theatre and literature instead. And then today I look back at that juncture and I'm like, thank goodness I went into theatre and literature because I look where I am today using the skills of stagecraft and understanding of how to build a text or how to construct a text to like deliver a core idea effectively. And I'm like, thank goodness, thank goodness. I'm not trying to like, you know, lift these thighs anywhere near a stage these <laughs> days. You know, there's, a, there's exercise that I do on my own with my little YouTube videos at the moment, but I'm not um, trying to heft heft myself across any stages at the moment so it was a it was a disappointment at the time but i'm i'm not sorry about where where these these two core pillars of my business have taken me today but it all began with a gorgeous divine wow so beautiful divine seven layers of blue floating tulle <laughs> it's great that you have such a fantastic memory of it oh. Well, I didn't get rid of it very long ago, so it wasn't a very distant memory. <laughs> well, I, I think, though, what you're actually saying is, uh, maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into this, I don't think I am, is that actually there has been a continuous line all the way from that, that four-year-old Helen who was in that gorgeous dress through to today, that you were actually always, by nature, as part of your underlying character, a performer. There is something to what you say. In, in um, Australian terms, that's called a show-off. <laughs> well, look, we're British. We're very understated. So, I, you know, I, I didn't want to go that far. <laughs> I, did, I did like the stage. I like the stage. And I also want to say for the record that there can be a tremendous difference between somebody who has the confidence to go on and use, you know, deliver lines that they've learned and somebody who isn't able to present themselves effectively when it's when it's them, when it's them themselves can. So like we can be extroverted in one context and be completely introverted in another. I had a client, one of my early clients who was a tour guide, able to talk to any group in the world, groups of hundred people, not a problem. One-on-one -on -one conversations, paralyzed. I said, these are the core skills that like, you wanna grow your network, you need these, you need the skills of small talk so you can grow your network. She says, well, just, I can talk to my family. I can talk to my children, does that count? I'm like, no, no would be the, the direct answer to that. So we can be introverted in one context and completely um, extroverted in another. It so doesn't true, so true. We have this uniform. We have this multi-layered um, version of ourselves. We sometimes like to pigeonhole ourselves as, you know, being, as you say, either introverted or extroverted, but actually 
often you'll see with, with, with actors that they could be obviously incredibly sensational on stage, but when you're one-on-one -on -one with them, shy as anything. Not like you, Robert, who is an animal, both on stage, in a podcast, you know, terrifying, terrifying, powerful public presence you've got going on here. I'll take that as a compliment. Absolutely, absolutely, 100%. So, so, so Helen, for our listeners who haven't been blessed with seeing some of your work on social media and your Facebook lives, give our listeners a sense of what you do professionally. Sure. So there are thousands of people who miss out on opportunities every single day because they don't have their skills or self-assurance or understanding in order to reach their speaking goals. They miss opportunities. They all finish the day and they're like, oh, why didn't I? Why, you know, what, why couldn't I grab that opportunity? Clearly what they need is the tools and skills and understanding and strategies so that they can get satisfaction about what they're going for, about what they want to achieve. If it's applause or audience engagement or a sales contract or whatever it is. I, my business is called Loud and Clear Training. I help people create strategies, tools and confidence so they get the investment, partnership, client, applause, whatever it is that they're looking for. And having come from the world of literature and theatre, I know how to build a script, deliver an idea and make sure people are focused on their goals. And as a result, my clients get applause, get investments, partnerships, clients, etc. Tell me, though, one of the things I've learned and you know, my career has been predominantly within the sales arena. Um, and this took me a while to learn, you know, that youthful enthusiasm um, had to learn some experience, not being um, fully assertive all the time actually turned into being a benefit. Um, or, or maybe I'm using the wrong word, but actually being able to know when to, I guess, shut up and actually listen um, and hear the other side. I often found that the sales where I was successful was often where I spoke less. How does that balance with what you're teaching versus particularly the sales arena? And obviously this doesn't relate necessarily to every other arena, the balance of speaking and listening. Such a great question, Robert. Um, I will share that I think that your question goes right to the heart of what, what actually is the sales process. So that, you know, the Torah that I bring to that space says, a salesperson should talk, wait, let me run that one more time. A salesperson should be talking 30% of the time and they're quite, they should mainly be asking questions and checking their understanding because it's the client who should be talking 70% of the time. And in fact, we fail most badly as a salesperson when we are pushing, pushing, I saw this, you know, chasing after the client, trying to convince them. If we're working to convince a client, we've already lost. You know, that's the moment where you know you're like starting to push, uh, push, uh, you know, a piece of text or an idea or a process or a piece of training or whatever it is, the service or product that you offer. You know you've lost it. You've lost it because you're talking rather than bringing them in. I saw this fantastic a video by, what's his name, Voss, I think he was, 
I think he's called, he was the chief negotiator for, his group was called Black Swan, I believe. And he described the sales process as being one where you get the client to say, that's right. How can a client say, that's right? Only when you have managed to listen well enough to accurately report back to the person what it is they've said. Saying to them what they've said shows them you were listening, shows they were heard, and shows that you, you get where they're coming from. When you can say to it, when a client says to you, that's right, that's the moment that you actually close the sale. Yeah, that aha moment. Yeah. I, think, I think one of the things that uh, I've always found is bringing humour into whether it's one-on-one -on -one sales environments, whether it's presenting. And I know that you're a very big advocate of this. I saw some of your videos recently on bringing fun and laughter into presentations. Um, it's so powerful. And you know, I think back even just to my school days, who were the teachers I loved and who I really learned from? Well, they were the ones who had engaging, fun and dynamic classrooms. And, and that translates back into obviously all of the work environments that we have today. And, and you know, when someone's boring, you're gonna switch off um, just naturally. What, what's your take on fun? How to bring it to presentations? Um, what if you're not naturally funny? A lot of people say, well, I'm not funny. I don't know humor. How, how do you bring your, your, your fun self to, to, the, to the work environment for presentations? Well, Robert, what I will share that what I love about your question and the one before and the one before that, there's, an, there's a pattern here, is that you really, um, really speak, you've really done your research and that's really respectful for me. I'll just share as an aside. And for me, it's a wonderful question because I'm a real believer in, in body language. Like we are, you know, we are primarily animal we are we have these instincts so we respond immediately to somebody who is warmer humor not everybody's funny okay not everybody's funny you can smile you can you can indicate warmth you can be open you can you know demonstrate engagement with your body and with your smile even if you're not you know throwing off you know you're not sparking witticisms left right and center I'll also share this because I uh, another thought, which is because I also want to really hit my own um, sort of feminist agenda here this morning, which is that humour can often be an expression of status. So many work officers experience that, you know, the boss makes a joke, everybody laughs. <laughs> We're like chuckling and rolling on the floor, grinning from ear to ear. But often people of lower status don't make the same kind of, don't make the jokes that to everybody. It may be an aside if somebody is, you know, sees themselves as funny, but they may not necessarily be the jokes that people are sharing in a broader context. It can actually be connected to status, but it is certainly true that people who make jokes are generally regarded as more likable, more welcoming, and, um, you know, more often like welcomed in because they're the life of a party. I once got invited to a party by a virtual stranger because she said, well, you, you look like you look like you'd be fun and that you would actually dance. And I'm like, oh, I'm here. I'm going to drink champagne and dance. 
okay, yeah, okay, I'll come. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> well, yeah, that works. I, I, I love that. And the for me, though, what, what you just said is really interesting, that in a work environment, often the ability to bring humour, you're saying, is intricately connected to hierarchy and actually bringing your real self into the office or um, you know to some extent now just to zoom um, is 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 something that perhaps is either what you're suggesting maybe male dominated or certainly management dominated um, I mean how do you take that I mean you know there are there are people that I've had colleagues in the workplace who are um, as you say perhaps more reserved in the office but when we went out for a drink after work, they were a different beast. Um, and we, we've got to be more of our authentic selves. Beautiful. So I can't resist, like, we do have, we do have like multiple parts of selves and perhaps in a, you know, different context, your colleague was more relaxed. I'll also share that the whole idea of having a drink and relaxing, that's like so like culturally coded, right? Indeed. In fact, people who come from cold cultures tend to drink more because that's how we how we warm up, relax. That's how we like expand our sociable selves, like let our guard down. People who come from hot cultures tend to smoke because it helps them cool down, calm down, you know, sort of chill a little bit more like calm calm the quick temper so it's kind of a, a culturally referenced um social behavior but yeah i think the people often let their guard down when they're out out with friends rather than at work but they have to be proper and deliver and you know nobody's going to give me a performance appraisal down at the pub <laughs> yeah indeed so true what we're talking about, though, is in-person engagement that uh, obviously has been the staple diet of how we conduct business and interact in the workplace um, up until 2020, when obviously the pandemic bombshell has hit us and um, the ability to convey body language, to be able to, to do certain things that, that give off our best self in a presentation arena, whether that's a one-on-one -on -one with colleagues, our bosses, whether it's whether it's you know presenting at conferences, a whole array of, of opportunities are now closed to us for the foreseeable future. As someone who is obviously the guru in this, Helen, you are the guru in this. Um, how do you bring your best self, your your presentation self, to a Zoom environment? And, and obviously there are different Zoom environments. You and I now are one-on-one -on, -one on Zoom. There are times when there might be 10, 20, 30 people on a Zoom. How do you bring your presentation self to a Zoom or a video conferencing environment, Helen? Beautiful. So I think that there are three elements. One is the technical, second is physical, and the third is you know, linguistic content, intellectual, if you will. So technically, I think there's stuff really like simple mechanical things that you can do to set up your camera so that you're close enough, so that you've got lighting on you, so that your the camera is at head height. And 
you look into the camera rather than looking down at the person because it's this whole like artificial break that being on camera has created for us. We've been trained since we could open our eyes to make content with the face of the adoring parent hovering over us. Oh, say she's perfect, she's perfect, which is, of course, what my parents said about me every day. In that beautiful dress. Uh, in the, especially when I was wearing, get that dad. No, not at all. Um, so we're trained to make eye contact. And the weird thing when we're on camera with people is that we have to not look at the person who's on the film, who's on the Zoom call with us. We just have to look into the camera. It's completely artificial. It's completely like anti-instinctual. And it's the thing which helps us deliver a sense of rapport and actually looking at the person that we're no longer looking at. Go figure. That's number one. Number two, lighting. Number three, background. Number four, make it contrasting. Wear a con colour that contrasts with your background so we can see you. If I, I'm sitting here against Jerusalem Stone, when I have a call with somebody and I'm wearing my favourite you know, camel-coloured cardigan, no one can see me. I am <laughs> with my skin colour, this hair colour, um, you know, a white woman with pale hair, pale eyes, and... Um, we can just see these glasses bobbing around. Basically a pair of specks with noise emerging <laughs> from underneath them, you know, not, not a powerful presence. Um, I also think that you want to bring your body forward. So if I'm on camera and I'm leaning back like this, like leaning way back in my chair, I give the impression of being less engaged because I am less engaged. I say put your tush, your rear back at the back of the chair but bring your shoulders forward so you're bringing your energy forward because we are reduced to this like tiny little yellow surrounded box on somebody's screen it's hard enough bring your body forward so that's technical and physical and content line them up line them up and hit them down that's that's the way we roll we like content on video that is sharp. We like content on podcasts that is sharp, which is why I'm really glad to be here with you today, Robert Curtis, podcast number one. And start on time and finish on time. That's just respectful. I love that. I love those punchy moments. I'm going to take that away as a big, uh, as a big recommendation. Um, but it's tough. I want to look at you now. We're on Zoom and um, obviously we're doing this for a podcast, but we've also got our video on. I want to look at Helen. If I'm looking at the camera, it's just weird for me. I want it to is weird for engagement. you and it's great for me. So go figure. I, absolutely. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, we, last week we had those, I, I guess I can say, pretty awful um, we had the pretty awful presidential debate. And um, this is supposed to be a, you know, a spectacle in presentation mastery as they try to win votes of tens of millions of people. And, you know, we saw two very different styles. We saw a, a, an interesting style, even from the anchor, Chris Wallace. And there were moments that when I was watching the debate, that, that resonated or connected. And you're, you're talking about some of those moments now that you know, Biden, for example, did, and he was probably trained to do this, he looked at the camera, he spoke down at the camera through the lens to the voter. 
Um, that wasn't something, for example, that Trump did. But Trump came with this bombastic bully approach that, that meant that he did dominate the debate in many ways. So, you know, how do you find that balance and, uh, you know, looking at their, their styles without pulling you into, you know, a political debate necessarily? Um, you know, what, what, what could you say was positive about both of them, actually, that we could learn in terms of presentation skills? Mm, well, well, great. So I, a couple of thoughts come to mind without taking, taking sides here. I think that um, some of Biden's strong moments for me were when he smiled, where it was just that the smile with those completely authentic teeth, I, you know, that was a um, moment of Commonwealth irony there. With you know, the smile and just the shake of the head was, I felt it sometimes undermined the power of, of Trump's um, contributions to that conversation. And in terms of um, delivery, I mean, Trump's absolute confidence, his, his determination, his clarity. And I, I wouldn't, you know, the word that comes to mind is shameless, but the you know, continual interruption because he was going to get hurt, because he was going to get hurt, because he was going to get hurt, is also a very powerful term, term, like tool, very powerful presence. Like, no matter who you agreed with, there were elements here and elements here that you might feel more comfortable with or less or less comfortable with. I will share that I found it difficult to hear actually what was the content being discussed because the dynamic made it difficult for me to engage deeply with the content that was being delivered. So depending on who you are as a speaker and what your goals are, if your main goal is to make to undermine the person who's on stage with you, I think that both men did that quite effectively. This one by smiling, this one by constant abrupt interruption. You, Depending on if you know if that's your goal, then you might take elements of both of those both of those uh, strategies. But if your goal is to deliver real ideas that might actually be helpful to people who want to learn about your policy positions, then that might not be the best way to go. Interesting. In, in politics, obviously, politicians have what they call the stump speech that almost no matter what question they get asked, they roll out the the the, the box standard answer. Um, how important in a sales and business arena, actually, is it for everybody to be equipped presentationally with a stump mm. speech on who they are or what they do, so that no matter what environment they can find themselves in, and increasingly those are not controlled environments, we're being pulled in many different ways, you might need somebody out, you might be on a Zoom, you might need to quickly convey your message. How important is it for people to have that stump speech in what they do and how best to remember it and articulate it? Robert, what a pleasure to be here with you this morning. So um, I think that there are parts of our self-presentation that we shouldn't be thinking over in real time. I think that it's worth our while as salespeople, as people who hustle, people looking for business, people who want to spend most of our time listening to others to just be able to sum up really briefly an idea that we offer 
you know, what it is that we do pretty, pretty quickly. I gave you one version of mine this morning, like earlier in our time together. I could do a much faster version of that if I felt the situation required it, like if we were in the situation of a handshake pitch, right? We don't always get a minute to present our ideas. Sometimes we have to present ourselves as we shake hands or nod or bow or, I don't know, whatever we might do, which is culturally appropriate to the setting in which we find ourselves. So you need a, the equivalent of a handshake pitch, a one-minute pitch. I do think it's really important to have those tools down because the worst, the worst possible self-presentation sounds like this. Hi, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Susan and I am, I'm like, kill me now, stop. I no longer care what you do. I want to like go and talk to anybody else who might be here. If you're not sure what your name is, like how long do you think I have? So give us, Helen, give us, give us the, the real practical day-to-day -day how to do this. If I was to meet you in the street, we hadn't been blessed with knowing each other prior. Um, you know, how do you quickly present your Helen and what you do? Show, show me. All right. Hi, I'm Helen, Helen Godstein. I'm a communications consultant. I own a business called Loud and Clear Training. My clients, X, Y, Z, so that they get X, Y, Z. That's, that's the basic structure. It's quick and snappy. Say my name twice. I say the name of my business. I give you a broad description of what it is that I do. So some of those sound bites will stay with you. And then I have a really clear structure for my third sentence, which packs in a bunch of verbs and finishes with the what I deliver for clients. So it's not I, you know, I could say I, I lecture, run workshops and courses. That would be fabulous, but no one has any idea what I do or why they would want to work with me. If I offer, I you know, coach, train and empower professionals to get investments, applause and sales, then people are more likely to understand the value of what it is that I offer. I think what you've said there about saying your name twice is huge. Um, I often get called Richard because um, people know it's an R, but aren't quite sure, was it Robert? Was it Richard? Was it Robin? Um, I think that's a very powerful tip there, um, which leads me on to sort of a saying that I, I don't know if it exists officially, it's something I thought about yesterday. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. And, and how true is that? I mean, content is important, but if there are two people with the same message and how they say it is different, does that impact? Um, there are stories of VCs and CEOs who make decisions based on the confidence with which an idea is offered to them. If we are so nervous and so anxiety ridden that the audience starts to sweat out of empathic anxiety with us as we're making our presentation, that anxiety overrides our ability to absorb information, right? We know that people who are in stress perform more poorly. That's straight out of Daniel Goldman's book, Emotional Intelligence. So the more relaxed, calm and confidence and, you know, expansive we can be, the more fun we're having, the easier it is for somebody to hear us. That's just, that's just like physical mechanics. That's just 
life in the animal kingdom. We are like people say the theory is that we're 70% body language. Like I hope that people can hear right now how warmly I'm smiling. Can you feel that, hear that big smile <laughs> out there, people? That's as many teeth as you're likely to see on a Sunday morning. And that's the that's the largest amount of teeth I would want you to see. Let's let's put it like that. Unless you're my dentist, in which case, God help you. I think that it really does matter how how much energy, energy, absolutely, how focused we are on our, on driving our message forward, and how warm we are. I absolutely believe it impacts how an audience hears you, whether whether or not they can hear you. Hundred percent. I love that, but I'm going to give you a perhaps a more controversial um, theory here. We I'm just going are... to say, Robert, forgive me for interrupting, but is it going to be more controversial than asking me in real time to make a comment about the the American presidential debate? Like how how like how deep are you willing to? <laughs> Maybe not that controversial, although you did it very very well. Your Commonwealth training of being fairly impartial, held you in good stead there, Helen. Yes. Um, but, but a question for you. I think we're living, although we are, as you put it quite rightly, living in an attention economy, I think although there is more information available than at any time ever in history, more people are head down, in their phone, AirPods on, and they are not presenting themselves, actually. They're looking at a minority of people who are grabbing the attention. And is that something that's actually gonna become even more of a, an issue, that actually the power, people's power will be distributed in even fewer hands for those people that know how to master presentation and how to master grabbing attention, because we're living in a world of this technology addiction where, as I say, most people, if you walk down the street, are head down, phone in hand, earpods on. They're not looking out, they're not looking up, they're not taking things in and they're not projecting themselves. Just a thought. So the, the fundamental question was, will the, will the average person's social media feed become increasingly restricted to those who can effectively grab the attention? So I think that um, thing that what we see is that there's never been greater opportunity for more people to get their voices out there. The, you shared before we came online that you're listening to multiple podcasts. You, today we're on our Robert Curtis's very first Coffee with Curtis podcast. Here we are today. It's a new product that you're putting out into the world that you, we hope people will listen to and gain from. So that is the platforms on which individuals can put their content out into the world have never been greater. What will make this podcast worth listening to is how much content you can pack in. I think that we are looking for people to learn from. We are programmed. It's one of the main reasons why the TED platform has exploded. It's because we know that the more we learn, the smarter we are, the more equipped we will be to contend with whatever we're coming, whatever is coming our way. You know, we will be better equipped to contend with 
um, our family crisis, our marriage problems, our need to save the planet or whatever it is. So I think that the world belongs to people who manage to grab attention. But I think that that is, those are skills that are absolutely teachable. I'm running a course that starts on the 26th of October on impromptu speaking skills. And mostly the people who come to that course have just run it at Medtronic, for example, for a group of eight recently promoted women so that they can get heard, even in online meetings where we're all contending for attention. We all wanna help you know, get our ideas out there. And we also wanna support the, our colleagues so that they get heard effectively as well. So those are skills that are absolutely learnable. Anybody can learn to teach effectively. To, I'll run that one more time. Anybody can learn to speak effectively. I will share that I got into this field because I was terrified of public speaking, terrified. I can't believe that. Terror, that's one word. Re, separate word, all on its own. Fide, that's a three word sentence. Right that's there. incredible, Heather. That really terrified. is incredible. Incredible. Well, this this is what happened. I, it's, I'm my first day of my second degree. I have to stand up to introduce myself to my Hebrew speaking colleagues. So I need to introduce myself in Hebrew. So I wrote down my notes. I wrote down some notes, which is a legitimate strategy, you know, to help keep me centered. I take down a few notes so that I won't, if I lose track, I've got some like reference points here in front of me. Completely legit. I recommend it even in sales meetings, even if we know our product. No problem. Take a few notes. I wrote down my name in Hebrew. The Hebrew letters are an H letter, an L letter, and a final N letter. I wrote that down so that when I stood up, I would be able to remember my name. I stood up and looked at that on that piece of paper, and I'm like, girl, you've got a problem. <laughs> Knowing that was my experience, even with my background in theatre, and even being able to confidently walk into a classroom and deliver content in, you know, a full year's program in teaching, let me know that this is not just my problem. This is a problem for thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And beyond having a fear of public speaking, people also need to be worth listening to. You have to, like, deliver content that people are actually going to engage with and to do that you have to think from the audience's perspective what will be interesting to them that is the basis of my success i help people speak in terms to get the audience listening rather than just me saying what i want to say but, but, but how would you take this statement the best orators usually win Well, I suppose it depends on what the word best means. Best means, I imagine they've got a strong opening. They know what their clear ideas are and they know how they're going to finish. That's an excellent orator. Know, where, know how you're going to start, know your key points and always know your final sentence off by heart. That's a great orator. Is that the best? Chances are. I want to move to a couple of final questions for you, Helen. 
Um, the first one is actually to do with storytelling mm -hmm. and the importance of that in, in all of our lives today. Um, you know, storytelling isn't certainly nothing new. Um, and it's something that has been around for, for hundreds of years. You can imagine people sitting at the you know, old inn and someone being a, a storyteller and hearing those heartwarming stories or, or whatever it might be. Um, I actually recorded a, a podcast for a client yesterday and uh, the, one of the, the guests was actually a, an extremely successful person in the fashion industry running you know, a billion dollar company and at the end of the podcast, he actually turned to me and said, Robert, how was it? Um, and he gave me an amazing line, which if I get this correctly, if improvement was a room and there was room for improvement, it would be the biggest room in the house. This concept that no matter what stage you get to in life, there's always room for improvement. And I actually said to him, what you delivered was brilliant. What your, what your podcast academically and theoretically was superb. But I said to him, you have 35 years experience in an industry. You, have must, you must have the most incredible stories that would help engage with the audience even more so. And he really took it on the chin. He said, what an amazing piece of advice. I said, you should probably have five or six banked stories that you could always use in certain situations. Um, but why is st storytelling so much more powerful than just sort of content delivery? Robert, it's almost like you've read the book. Um, <laughs> um, so we are programmed on two tracks. We are emotional and I'll call it intellectual. We, if there's nothing that's emotional, we don't care. And if there's, it's not reinforced by data, so it reduces its credit. The story lacks impact. It lacks power. So it's the linking of emotion and data that really delivers corporate storytelling. We are programmed to love stories. We are from, you know, we're all, if we were blessed with having parents or caregivers who loved us, we were read story. We got stories read to us when we were little. So we are, it's embedded. Those structures are embedded. I say to you the words once upon a time and you're, you're in, you're in. You know that I'm about to take you on a journey. In fact, this is how to begin an effective story is to begin with a time expression, just like in the first sentence of a fairy tale. In fact, in the very first sentence of a fairy tale, you get when, who, where, and what. Once upon a time, there was a little girl called Goldilocks who walked into the deep, dark forest. That's the entire journalisting setup of a story is delivered in the very first sentence. Beginning a story with a time expression gets you launched Last October, when I was four, was the story that I shared before. And this morning, during the period of COVID, a time expression immediately places the story in a particular dark context. We're already getting data. It already increases the credibility of the events that we want to describe. So that's a storytelling tip. And I absolutely couldn't agree more. I think that people need to walk into... Mm, sales situations, donor conversations, mm, whatever it is, meetings with 
five stories. Five is what I call the minimal reservoir of stories of success. Inter like also, hello, interviews. Who's not interviewing at the moment to like move their job up, either up the pyramid or, or across if you're doing a jungle gym, across ways in terms of the, how you want to build your career and spend your time. Five or six effective stories of a time that I worked with Synergy, a time that my company delivered above and beyond, a time that we really came through for a client, placed in a specific time and context, helps create credibility. And the punchline is always data. What the results were from the client, those are effective stories. That's the basic structure of corporate storytelling. And when you're doing a pitch, you totally need those as well. That's actually the backbone of a fundamental pitch of the, you know, the basic core pitch, 100%. I love that because ultimately people don't like to hear about features. They want to hear about outcomes. Yeah, nobody cares. And if I hear the word algorithm one more time, somebody will die. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care that you have an algorithm. You know, raise your hand. Uh, let's do this one. I've done this thing exercise with a room of like 200 people. Raise your hand if, if your product is unique. Right? <laughs> Not a good word. Not a good word. Everybody here, unique. Everybody here, algorithm. It's not going to sell your product. What will sell your product is the outcome that you deliver, the results that you deliver. What do you increase? What do you reduce? That's the way to roll. Make it focused on the client. And that, that is a wrap. <laughs> I love that, Helen. Now, final question for you. All right. Um, we've been discussing uh, before we came on air, and certainly I've been watching some of the output that you've had on social media, um, really focusing on female presentation skills um, and getting women to feel more confident, to deliver in the workplace, to deliver in presentation settings. Um, you've shared some amazing uh, research with me just before, and I hope you'll share it with our listeners. Uh, but the importance of giving women a voice is not just a cliche. How do women actually build the confidence to get that voice into the workplace? And I'll, I'll leave you before you answer with something that I read about the sort of life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who obviously is... Um, you know, passed away and uh, been reading a lot about her over the last sort of week or two. She said to somebody who asked her a question of whether success looked like 50% women on the Supreme Court. And she said, no, that doesn't look like success because success for me is when it is normal, just like if we had an all male Supreme Court, that we would have an all female Supreme Court. That shouldn't be something as extraordinary because we're used to having all male Supreme Court. So, you know, she, she had, you know, a particularly powerful voice, but talk, talk to us more about that topic. No specific question. Beautiful. So I will share that from my experience, I have seen women put themselves down in ways that are simply mind-blowing when you start to notice them. Not just the older generation. I've worked with people who are 80 plus, who are growing their businesses, who are putting themselves, women who are putting themselves down in ways that are just astonishing, as well as 
when my children were younger, 16-year-olds where the divide between the way the girls described themselves or premised what they were saying and the ways the boys described themselves or premised what they were saying with other, you know, so, you know, this is a problem, this is probably dumb, but I haven't really thought this out, but I was wondering, you know, you know, puts hand up, finger on cheek in a cute way. You know, this is just a silly thought that I had. You know, the way we premise, the way we pose our, share our thinking really impacts how we're heard. So one thing that we can do is notice how constantly we put ourselves down and how much we apologise for what we're about to say. And at the same time, we can't just do a, like, match for the way that men speak because research sadly shows that when women speak in exactly the same ways, the same linguistic patterns as their male colleagues, listening um, deteriorates. In fact, what helps women get heard is throwing in the occasional, sorry, was that clear? Or just wondering. In fact, it's some of these markers of female speech, the slight contraction, contraction? reduction go with one of those i don't think i'm having contractions so we'll put that to one side slight like reduction in you know power of a presentation can actually help women be heard better by their male colleagues that's not a final solution that is um that is, you know, just strategy for the meantime. One of the key pieces of research that came out of Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, that I take with me is one of the main things that in, impacts how well women are heard is the number of women who are in the room. So if you really want to hear the, you know, representative of, of of, you really want to hear the female member of your board, make sure that she's not, there isn't just one member of your board who's a woman. Get more women on your board because that actually helps women get heard, not, not just on an individual basis, in, actually on an individual basis as well. Okay. I also want to say this. I think we all need to practice in growing our courage muscle, and that is just taking risks. I'll share that doing these Facebook Lives for me, was just a way to exercise my courage muscle. Not really clear to me what the direct outcome might be. Yeah, I'm growing engagement with my page, but it was just for me to leap into that space and say, Helen, lots of people are doing it. Many of them are smarter than you. Many of them are not as smart as you. Chances are you're good enough. And just taking that leap has made it easier for me just to continue putting my content out there in ways that I increasingly feel resonate with what I really want to be doing, with the voice I really want to be putting out in the world. So women in business, how do we improve the momentum? I would say, ladies, we've got to be willing to lean in. We've got to be willing to step up. And if Robert Curtis invites you to come on his podcast, he's a very polite man and he is unlikely to interrupt you. So, ladies, this is one way to bring it, bring it and put it out there. Helen, absolutely fabulous final answer. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you as my first guest on the Coffee with Curtis podcast. You've been a delight. You've given so much value to our listeners and we've had some fun. So, Helen, thank you so much. Robert, what a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad our paths have crossed and I will have coffee with Curtis 
anytime. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Curtis. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please remember to subscribe and watch out for the next episode.